You're listening to episode 21 of Unfinished Business, the weekly discussion show about the business end of web, design and creative industries. And today is May the 31st, 2013. The show is hosted by me, Anna Debenham, and by my co-host, Andy Clark. You were going to say then that he's my primate. That's the joke I wrote. Why do you never laugh at my jokes? <laughs> I'm never going to read out your jokes. The show wouldn't be possible without our sponsors this week. Smashing Magazine's CSS3 for a responsive design workshop with our very own Andy Clark. That would be me. That's you. And the Revolution Conference that's happening on 21st of September in Shrewsbury, Shropshire. We'll tell you more about them later in the show. All the links that we mentioned in this episode are in our show notes and you'll find them at unfinished.bz forward slash 21. So what's this about your ape being in customs? Uh, Yeah, still stuck. There's one of these little Kubricks that are on their way from Japan and they've gone into this big black hole, which apparently is the post office's Langley centre where all the post from overseas comes. And it's been there a month now and it seems to be disappeared. I just imagine little post office workers playing with my little figures somewhere. Well, I think this is hilarious because last week after the show, you told me that you went to a Justin Bieber gig. So? So you're a believer. <laughs> you and... promised that you wouldn't talk about this. No, I didn't. <laughs> it's not just me. I wasn't the only one that went. Oh, dear. Alex went as well. If you're listening, but sorry, mate. You know that Justin Bieber had his monkey confiscated in customs? I heard something about it on the <laughs> Justin Bieber fan club channel. <laughs> No, all right. Yeah, I know. So we did. And we didn't go and see Justin Bieber. Thank you very much. We, and this is probably even worse, we went to see Taylor Swift because I got tickets through one way or another. And we had tickets, two of us, to go and see Taylor Swift in Manchester at the MEN. And I've got to say, it was a good gig. It was a good concert. Um, well, the bit with Justin in it. Not the bit. Actually, it was really funny because apparently, like a few days before, he'd done a gig uh, in Wembley and had broken his ankle or something. So he was hobbling around the stage in <laughs> a plaster cast on his ankle. But we didn't go and see Justin Bieber. I tell you what, it was really funny because we're in the MEN, the big auditorium in Manchester, and Taylor Swift and Justin Bieber, and there's me and Alex and about 4,000 prepubescent girls. <laughs> and I swear to God, they were making a noise that only dogs could hear. <laughs> it was like, I tell you what, the squealing was so bad. It was like having an MRI scan. You wow. could just feel it going right through you. <laughs> so don't get me started on Justin Bieber. Because you won't be able to stop. Because I won't be able to stop. I tell you what else is on my rant list for this week. Soap. Soap? Soap. Like the... Uh... The soap thing? No, actual soap. Hand watch soap. Have you have you stayed in a travel lodge or a premier inn or something recently? Yeah. There's this trend in hotels not to give you a bar of soap in yeah, the bathroom. Bars of soap are stupid. But then the thing that bars of soap are great. They're, I love bars of soap, but now everywhere has those stupid dispensers on the wall, and that's not soap. It's like some foam or something. And you can't get a good wash out of it. You cannot get a good wash out of that foamy dispenser soap. What you need is a proper, old-fashioned bar of soap. And they've stopped putting them in hotels. Bars of soap are stupid because, like, 
you're looking for something to to wash hands with and it's it's in that stupid little wrapper thing and so you just got wet hands and you're trying to unwrap this thing well, you do and, then, the, oh, and it slips out of your fingers and you unwrap it before you start having a wash you think to yourself i'm gonna have a wash now i'll unwrap a bar of soap you don't like get halfway and, and then, then you think, put it on the sink and it just leaves loads of like it gets stuck to the sink there's nothing better try it off there's nothing better than a proper bar of soap trust me and so old and so this is the thing, right? Yeah, you might say I'm old. So what I've done, old people like me, what I've done is obviously what they must have done, hotel owners around the world, is they've thought oh, somebody's only checking in for like one or two nights. It's a bit of a waste to, you know, you start a bar of soap. You never finish a bar of soap in a hotel, yeah. do you? And who takes them home? And Well, I do. But, I mean, most people probably don't take them home. So I can imagine they think, oh, let's let's save a bit on soap and just put one of those dispensers up there. The point is, though, is you don't get a good wash out of it. So I've started taking my own soap. Oh, I got a bar of soap and I, you know, you buy a nice bar of Dove and I've even got like a soap container. I take it with me. <laughs> I take it in with a little I, rubber duck. I pack it in my toilet bag. No, I take my little cuddly gorilla with me, but no, I actually take a bar of soap and do it this week. This, and this has happened twice now in Geneva. I've taken a brand new bar of soap into a hotel room in Geneva and I've come back the following day after they've made up the room. They've nicked my soap. They've probably thrown it out because they're like, what the hell is this? They've nicked my soap. The Albanian maid has just stolen my soap. I mean, do they not have soap in Albania? I don't know where it goes. But they steal my soap. So frustrating. I bought another bath this week. And I'm going through more soap. I think it's funny when they put in the shower, they put a, a soap dispenser and it's like shampoo and body wash. Do you want to know a little known fact? Mm. I haven't mm. used shampoo for three years. Oh, that's disgusting. It's not disgusting. I mean, I'm still clean. I wash my hair, you know, more or less every day. But I don't use shampoo. And my hair's brilliant. It's all soft and it's got life. And I don't know. There you go, little known fact. It's not gross. Because your hair just, you know, you get clean with water, you get a bit of good scrub, and your hair just does its normal thing. I like that it's you, the one that's talking about hair. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm so vain. But no, that's true. Little known fact. You should try it. So anyway, what were you talking about this week? Um, well, I've got a bit of an update. Um, you know, we were talking about... <sighs> I didn't really know what to do with my design thief. Mm. Um, and it got to the point where I either did nothing or I did something and it was likely to, to cost a bit of money. Yeah. Well, it turns out, I've got an email um, from a kind listener pointing me to an article in The Guardian um, from October last year, mm -hmm. which is about the uh, Property Patent Claims Court. And basically, um, there was a change in UK legislation at the end of last year. And there's a new system set up. I think it's only in London. So I might actually have to pay a visit to, uh, to London to sort of file papers or something like that. Mm. But basically, it's like the small claims court, small claims clap, uh, track for photographers and designers whose work gets ripped a lot. Hmm. Um, and have some form like this, you know, the small claims court is, Supposed to be, you know, a cheaper and easier way of getting redress for other yeah, I've legal gone through that before. 
processes. Well, this is supposed to be the same for copyright theft as well. Um, and in October, it was up to claims of £5,000 or less. They said that they plan to increase it to £10,000. Um, but I'm going to look into this. There's a form uh, that he also sent me a link to. I'll put some, a, a link to it in the show notes. But this yeah. is definitely what I'm going to do. Um, I think I'm actually just going to say I'm going to send the guy one more uh, letter which says this is what's going to happen to you unless you take down the stolen artwork. Um, yeah. And if I don't get anything from that or he doesn't respond to that, then that's what I'm going to do and I'll keep you posted because cool. it seems like a really – you know, it's designed for exactly this kind of situation. Yeah. So really pleased to have found that out. You put a link to another article from .NET Magazine? Yeah. Actually, I think you brought this up. Or did I? No, I sent you no, an no, email. You did. I sent you an email about this. But I'd read it before that. Yeah. About web design businesses um, and the profit that they make. I can't believe this. This was such... Um, if this is true, then it's a bloody disgrace. Did you did you read this thing through? Um, marketing reporting and analysis firm Plimsoll Publishing has released some sobering facts, it says, about the UK web industry, which basically means that people either make very little money or no money at all <laughs> for some of them. And uh, there was a couple of quotes that, that uh, I picked up on from this report um, among the UK's top 550 web design companies analyzed the research stated that average profits have fallen across the board to 8.9% of sales a total of 218 companies were found to be running at a loss so what what is it what do they mean by top 550 web design companies Who? is that kind of in terms of quality or number of people working there i don't know i mean 550 who the hell are they <laughs> i mean is it top by uh number of staff or business size or how, how have they who are they yeah i just don't understand how any business can run at a loss for any period of time mm. i mean yeah and i can imagine occasionally you know people might have to dip into an overdraft but i've got to say if if you're a business that is constantly running in the red, if you're constantly running off an overdraft, you're not and a business. And you've got staff as well. Yeah, you're not a business. You're a bleeding charity case. <laughs> you know, you're not a business unless you actually make money. So how the hell, you know, what is virtually half of, you know, these 550 can be running at a loss is completely beyond me. So I was having to think about, what some of the reasons might be. Um, I was chatting with uh, Lisa Reichelt and um, we were talking about sort of how agencies bring in salespeople to do pitches, um, but not designers and developers, not the people who are going to be working on the site. Um, and often sort of marketing people will sort of promise loads of stuff, but that can't be delivered or isn't doesn't fit within the budget or, you know, they'll just try and sell as much as they can. Um, and that can reduce profitability. Um, and, and Lisa had the point that, um, you know, if, if you bring in designers and developers into pitches, that also has a problem of, um, you can kind of, you're basically using up their time that they could be spent working on the site. So it's not, you know, it's not great to have lots of designers and developers in a pitch meeting. Um, but 
I think it's better than than just having a salesperson there who doesn't who may not understand how the site's actually going to be built. And they do they they mention that there's sort of a bigger gap between agencies doing really well financially and, and agencies doing really badly. Um and I thought maybe it's because the ones that are doing it really badly, they're not sort of they're not able to keep up with changes in the web um and they're sort of falling behind. You know, they're still doing things the old way. Mm. I don't know because I don't have many dealings with uh, you know, larger agencies, you know, like my friend Dan, you know, works for an agent and, uh, agency. And, you know, I've got, I've got, he's got much way more experience of kind of the inside of these big organizations than, than I have. Um, but I do have experience in the past, you know, for years and years in advertising, we, you know, we'd go on, on pitch meetings mm. and it was kind of different then in a way. You know, when I, when I was in advertising and we, and we went to pitches, we were after the advertising business. The creative got given away free. Mm. And that, you know, that's how, I don't know whether that's how advertising still works, but it certainly did when I was, when I was in it. And it wouldn't really matter what the heck you promised. And it actually wouldn't matter how long something took or how many bodies you threw at the job because you weren't charging for the creative. You were charging for the advertising spend. Yeah. And that's obviously very, very different with what we do now on the web where we have to build something. And I think the difference is possibly between large organizations, large companies that have got lots of bodies that they can throw at things and potentially smaller and more focused and leaner companies um, or, you know, really, really small teams like us that can just stay really hyper-focused on things. Yeah. And we have to, because if you let stuff get away from you, you're not going to make any money. Yeah. You really have to stay on top of it. I wonder as well if it was just kind of the types of budgets that they were. Like if one one group of agencies was um, was marketing for the lower end and you they're, they're, they're kind of, um, they're, they're sort of, their profit was getting narrower and narrower. And then the group, at the the higher end that are, are are aiming for sort of really high budgets and lots of people it's kind of if that if that's causing a sort of separation yeah i mean you know larger projects with large budgets generally involve large teams and large teams are expensive yeah and that's not the kind of thing that i ever get involved in and if all. there's more competition as well if there's more web agencies than there used to be then they're either going to be competing over price or they're going to be competing over quality. Well, you know, if the, if, if the business is the same, let's, let's just, for example, think that, um, you know, you've got your business set up and you're competing at a certain level and, you know, you've got a certain level of running costs, you know, those bodies, those bums on seats cost money. And yeah, if the overall cost of, of, of jobs goes down or, you know, your profit squeeze, then yeah, you're going to be in trouble. Mm. But I think that, and I've always, I've said this for a long time. Actually, it doesn't really matter how low the budget is. You can still make good business out of it. But yeah. what you have to do is you have to adapt the way that you work and you have to adapt the way that you're structured. So if companies are not adapting and the overall profits are going down um, and they're, they're not adapting their costs or becoming more efficient so that they can do two or three times the number of jobs to stay at the same level, well, more for them, to be honest. 
Um, you know, we all have to adapt, um, you know, to changing environments. And, and things have changed a lot over the past few years. I mean, if you look at the way that we've been looking more at mobile and there's a lot more to think about than there used to be, but the budgets maybe are staying the same. Well, and if you're a bigger agency, if you're a bigger organization, it's going to take you longer. It's more difficult to change direction. Whereas, you know, if you're a little small focused team like us, um, or, you know, even, even a, even a bigger, you know, even when you're up to kind of, you know, 10, 20 people, something like that, it's a lot easier just to switch direction. Um, so I don't know. I was just amazed that almost half, uh, of the companies that whoever they were that were surveyed are running at a loss. I just find that staggering because, yeah. you know, that's not a business. So I would be really worried if I worked for one of those. Uh, organizations. Yeah, just imagine how it would be, you know, every month you're thinking, am I going to go over my overdraft limit? Am I going to be able to, you know, pay my staff? Yeah. I mean, it's. And the sorts of projects that you'd be taking on in desperation as well. Yeah. I, 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 we have never owed any money as a business. Um, mm. and we've never, ever had an overdraft. So. I've got a particular, you know, particular view, particular experience on things, which obviously is very different from other people. But I just have this, I don't know, pathological aversion to owing anybody any money. Um, and I always like to live within my means. Maybe it's because I'm old fashioned, but you know, I like to save up for things rather than put it on a credit yeah. card. Yeah, um, and I've applied the same thing to business, which has probably done me well in some situations, but you know, maybe it's, maybe it's not done me well in others, you know, maybe I could have been a little bit more daring, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah. So last week we talked about, um, NDAs and you got some nice feedback about that. Yeah, I did. Actually, we had some lovely tweets and quite a few emails. And, uh, there was one here from Chris Blom, which I wanted to just talk to you about, uh, cause he sent me an email to say that, um, he discovered this week, poor soul, um, that a previous employee, had included in his online portfolio some projects what that he'd done while he was working for Chris. Um, mm. And some of them hadn't actually been signed off by the clients. Mm. I know. Um, and, you know, some of them used kind of concept work rather than the final design. Um, and obviously, you know, this puts Chris in a, in a difficult decision, but difficult position. But what he said at the end was, was something that I was really pleased with was that, you know, the biggest thing that he's taken away, um, is that everybody, whether it's his team or contractors, they all sign an NDA now. He said, here, I'm going to ask all my contractors and all clients to sign a three wise monkeys inspired NDA starting tomorrow. <laughs> uh, it serves to protect everyone and, uh, everyone will know the boundaries and expectations. And he's right. Yeah. It's not necessarily about being kind of, you know, overly litigious. It just means that you're taking stuff that's seriously. Yeah. No, that's a nightmare. <laughs> so, uh, so hopefully that helped. And, you know, it obviously helped Chris and I hope it helped other people as well. But again, as I said at the end of the last show, I want people to be inspired by those documents, be inspired by the NDA or by the contract killer to go off and do their own thing, mm. not necessarily just take it for for what it is but i get i get tweets about that more or less every day and that's really nice so tell us about our first sponsor i hear it's a real good one today 
Yeah, so our first sponsor is um, Smashing Magazine's CSS3 for Responsive Design. Um, it's a workshop you're running. Um, so responsive web design means that there's never been a more interesting time to design for the web than today. And CSS3 for Responsive Design means that CSS is now more interesting too. So if you're looking for the, the best place to learn about CSS3 for Responsive Design, Smashing Magazine are hosting a brand new full day workshop with my co-host, Andy Clark. That's you. That is me. <laughs> it's happening in the beautiful city of Freiburg in Germany on June 25th. And in Andy's workshop, you'll learn how to make the most of the latest CSS3 modules so that your websites and applications will be faster, more fun to use and fashionably flexible. In just one day, Andy will teach you how to use table display properties to rearrange content. Create cross-browser layouts using Flexible Box Layout, that's Flexbox. Experiment with grid layout, CSS regions and exclusions. Improve typography with multi-column layout. Make the most of tiny bitmaps with border images. And use transformations and transitions. And much, much more. A lot of workshops that you can go to, uh, they're just all talk, but this one's going to be really practical you'll be tinkering with everyday examples of responsive web designs and see them working across a range of devices from mobile phones to desktops and everything in between. And at the end, you walk away with a full set of resources and example files, which is great if you want to share with your co-workers what you've learned. Andy's been teaching CSS to web designers and developers for eight years, and he makes sure his workshops are always informative, stimulating and fun. And he promises that he won't tell them any of his bad jokes don't you? Well, there might be some. <laughs> but as well as that, Freiburg is one of the most beautiful cities in Europe, so it's a great place to take an extra few days out to explore a little bit of Germany. And Smasher Magazine are amazing hosts, and they'll make sure that you leave smiling. Tickets are great value at €349, Euros, and to book your place, go to tinyurl.com forward slash smashing workshop. Yeah, it's going to be fun. <laughs> I'm really enjoying putting all of the reference material together for that workshop. Uh, it's all about apes in space. Can you can you believe that? <laughs> it's kind of like a, an apes-themed example for us. But no, it's fun. And it's quite challenging because so much of this stuff is new. Yeah. And I'm kind of learning as well as putting the teaching materials together. So... Hopefully that's going to mean that I can, you know, communicate. You explaining it. Yeah. And I can understand where the difficult bits are and where the, uh, easy bits are. You know, some mm -hmm. of, some of the concepts around Flexbox are fairly straightforward, but some of them need a lot of explanation. So I'm working quite hard on, you know, drawing up examples that, um, that hopefully we're going to make that, make that easier. But no, you're right. It's, it's a lovely place and the smashing crew are really brilliant at putting these things together brad frost is doing a workshop this very day for them <laughs> in germany um and he seems to be having a good time so yeah hopefully i'll see people there Yay. so i was reading a tweet from me old mate tim van dam the other day you know my little code easter egg don't you with tim mm. yeah you put i hate tim van dam in the body class in every project there was always a little i hate tim van Dam <laughs> in all my client stuff i didn't put it into into rock hammer in rock hammer i put don't hate tim van Dam. oh it's in, it's in unfinished business site yeah it's in the unfinished business site yeah 
Because okay. I kept seeing it and being like, hmm, maybe I should take this out. No, see, because Tim's such a lovely guy. And, you know, we've known each other for a long time. And it's an in-joke um, that I will always put this little class in things. In fact, in Hard Boiled, he became a, a transparent PNG file. It's like an <laughs> I hate Tim Van Damme dot PNG. Uh, people oh. email me um, regularly. They go, what is this thing with Tim Van Damme? <laughs> anyway, so I saw this, saw this uh, tweet from Tim. Uh, four years ago, he said, I worked for the rudest client I ever met. No one believed me. I quit and gave him his money back. And I was thinking, yeah, do you know what? About four years ago, I did exactly the same thing. Mm. I worked for a client um, and this was just one of those awful situations where you, you, know, you dread uh, opening your email to, you know, yeah. to find what's going to come next. Um, and it just really reminded me of that. And I was thinking, you know, we often talk about the good things that we do um, and when things go well, but it's not often that we talk about, you know, bad experiences or poor projects or big business mistakes or, you know, disasters. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, okay, let's just spend an episode talking about all the really bad <laughs> things that have gone wrong and maybe what we learned from them. So you first. Um, so I've not had like one massive disaster, like one kind of thing that I could really say was, was a big thing, but I've had lots of little ones that I think I could have avoided. Um, so I've kind of, I've made a note of them and I've put what the mistake was, but also what the solution was. Yeah. Um, so one of my first ones and probably, probably the one that, that, I can go back to and say, yeah, that, that if I fixed that, then that would have been for the best. Um, undercharging. Um, so when I started out, I was constantly worried that a potential client would say that I'm too expensive. So I'd, I'd sort of, um, ha I'd have a really low rate and, um, I'd, I'd pricings based on the project rather than on the time it would take me. So I'd just kind of pick a number out of the air. Um, and that just meant that every project I did, it was just, I could have worked in, you know, I could have worked for minimum wage. It worked um, in Tesco. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd, I'd have earned more. So the way that I fixed that was, um, I increased my rate and I also looked at different types of projects and switched from working on websites on my own to doing sort of contract work on longer term projects, which kind of feels a lot more stable. Um, and that helped me sleep a bit better. <laughs> yeah, no, I've been, in the last couple of years, I've been doing a lot more of those. You know, we had that gig with Scottish TV mm. for a while and I worked on a couple of other kind of longer government projects and it does a lot for your sanity, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really like the flexibility, you know, of, of switching between clients and, you know, I, yeah. I like that variety. Um, but it is nice sometimes just to kind of, you know, wake up on a Monday morning and know exactly what you're going to be doing. Yeah. And exactly how many hours you're going to be working and how much you're going to get paid for that rather than, you know, this could take any, any time between, um, you know, a week and a month. Yeah. No, I don't think anybody can really effectively work that way because I mean, how are you going to budget? Yeah. I mean, how are you going to budget for time or budget for what you charge? I mean, that's exactly the, the classic situation where, you know, if you don't keep track of time, then yeah. you, things are just going to go haywire. You know, they're going to go over time. They're going to go over budget. 
yeah so that's my kind of next little business disaster was um because I wasn't keeping track of time uh, when I started out so every new project I did um I was just kind of guessing at how long it took me before um and that guess was always wrong um so my estimation for projects was was too low um and so what I did to to fix that was um I just started keeping track of all my time on every project including my own personal projects um and I used lots of little timekeeping apps I tried out quite a few um and I found one that kind of integrated with free agent um and I also estimated 25% more time than I thought I needed and that really helped um cuz usually I'd actually need that time but the times that I didn't I could kind of exceed the client's expectations and I could say look we can eat. I've got I've got some extra time do you want me to add these features or do you want you know do you want to come under budget um so that was always really good I'd rather I'd rather kind of I'd rather meet or exceed expectations and to you know to do badly and go over budget yeah I think that's really important I mean I can't work when we have lots of small things to take care of or keep an eye on. Mm. And it's why, you know, I can never sort of do an hourly rate or a daily rate. It's where this whole kind of weekly thing came from. Mm. And the whole thing was inspired by, uh, I had a conversation with Jesse Bennett Chamberlain, really, really good designer. And he was telling me about how the fact that clients buy blocks of time from him. Yeah. Uh, so he will say, Okay, I imagine that you're going to need you know a week or two or three for this project, so you can hire me for that amount of time, and I'm yours. And um, you know I'm not going to do anything else. I'm going to keep the Skype line open, and I'm completely yours while we work on this project. Yeah. And that really worked for him. And I thought that's an interesting idea. Um, and he would also say, you know, at the end, it's like, okay, so we've got some spare time now. You know, we've got things done quicker than we thought. What do you want to do next? What do you want me to handle? Because they were buying blocks of time from him. And yeah. that's where it's where our kind of weekly working idea came from. Because if you kind of merge that idea with people buying blocks of time with the fact that you want to accomplish a certain set of requirements over a week or two, then it, all of a sudden it kind of made sense to me. Mm. Um, and that's helped us stay on, you know, stay on budget, stay on time. Mostly, you know, occasionally you'll kind of run over because our oh, bank holidays are a nightmare. Yeah. I, you know, we had obviously a bank holiday in the UK this week. Um, or freelance catch up day. Is that what you call it? You see, I yeah. didn't have a break at all because I was in Geneva at WIPO. And uh, it wasn't a bank holiday in, in Switzerland. Oh. So I'm working. Everybody else is really quiet back here. Um, but you know, you plan your work by a week and, you know, a week to us is five days. And yeah. all of a sudden, you know, the government steals one and, you know, that could, that can be a bit awkward. Um, but that's, that's worked really well for us because I just can't keep on top of time. I mean, I'm a notoriously bad time manager. Yeah. So, you know, the simpler that I can make it for, for my old tired brain then the better really i found it really useful when i was working on lots of little projects i mean i don't really need to do it so much now um because i'm at the same place every day um but when i was working on multiple sites at once you know i might i might be working on one for an hour i might get a phone call um i'd have a little app that it was like a timer um and i'll put the link in the show notes to it um but it would just keep track of like different projects and how much time i was spending on them 
Um, and that was just really useful because I was always billing the right amount. And I found out that I was actually billing more than I did before I was tracking my time. So here's the thing. Here's a question. Do things go wrong in terms of time estimates because of something that you've done wrong? You know, you've completely mishandled the amount of time that you thought it would take to code something up. Or is it because often other people get in the way and they slow you down? Um, well, I kind of, I guess it's a bit of both. Um, you know, there might be something that pops up that I hadn't kind of thought of or, um, I've had things in the past where it's been like, you know, I'll I'll finish the site and then I'll try and put it on the client's hosting account. And I realize that their hosting account is one of those budget ones and it doesn't handle like PHP or (laughs) something really stupid. Um, and then that adds a lot of time. Um, but I found that keeping track of time, um, I can, as long as I'm, if, if I say like, it's going to take three days to do this, two days to do this, I can keep an eye on that. And if I start to go over, there's a lot of, there's much better communication with the client. If I can say, okay, it looks like we might not meet this target, which is coming up in a few weeks, rather than the day before being like, oh, you know, we're, we've fallen behind. Yeah. I mean, it's, we had this client. I think I've told you this story before about the, about the, uh, the travel shop. Mm. I think I've told you this. Um, which was one of those situations where things just completely got out of hand. I mean, I think that this has got to be my worst job ever. Mm. Um, it was just the biggest disaster, uh, that we've ever had in, in terms of a client project. Uh, because, you know, time, just completely got away from us. Um, and the budget that we'd set, I tell you what, what happened was we were working, uh, through a really nice little agency, local design agency. And we'd done a, a load of work with them before and it had always gone really well. And they came along and they said, we've got this client, um, and we'd really like to do all of their rebranding and brochure and everything else as a web component. Will you do it? And they, mm. they had this famous lines, which is, but they don't have much money. <laughs> But there might be some more in the future. And I'm like, I turned it down. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And they came back and they said, you know, we really, really want you to do it. Can we find some way? And I turned it down again. And then they came back really insistent and said, can, you know, please, can you do it? Because it's really important that, you know, we can keep control of the whole project uh, and not just do the web and not just do the print part. Right. So I said, okay, we're going to do this job. Um, and if we're going to do it within that budget, then we have to manage the project in a certain way. You know, we have to be in control and there can't be any of the usual buggering about that happens. Mm. Um, and everybody said, yes, that's fine. You know, we'll, we'll work that way. So we nailed everything. You know, we had initial workshops where we, uh, we worked out all of the layout, all of the functionality, all the content architecture. We spent a couple of days literally filling the walls with post-it notes um, and getting down to the nitty-gritty about how the tags were going to work and what the search was going to do and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And I thought this is going to go okay. And like I say, sometimes you don't, ha- you might not have the biggest budget, but if you do the job in a certain way, you can still make money. Yeah. You know, if you're efficient and productive, you can you can make small budgets into gold. Uh, this was not one of those situations because 
the client completely ignored everything after that. Oh. And they would turn around and go, no, we don't want that's no, we don't want the search to work that way. We want it to work the same as our old site. And you go, no, we talked about that. The content management system that you can afford can't work that way. Oh. Um, you know, your budget doesn't extend to a content management system that can do that. Um, and then they would go, no, this doesn't, we want this different, we want that different. They would do stupid things. Um, uh, like they would say, we want, uh, what you see is what you get editing of the, uh, expression engine control panel. Mm. And, uh, we would spend, you know, time putting that in and then they'd change their mind and something would break it. And, oh, it was just a complete nightmare. It was, they were, they were truly, truly the worst people I've ever, ever had to deal with. And in the end, we got to a certain point and we did a calculation and we realized that we'd already spent more time at our cost mm. than the job was worth. Like yeah. not just, we weren't just not making any money on it. We were actively making a loss on every single minute that we spent working on that project. Yeah. So I basically turned around to the agency in the middle and said, okay, what we need to do right now is we need to pay me up to date and then we'll kind of, you know, assess where we are. So they did that. They were clean about that. They were good. Uh, and they paid. And then what I did was I wrote them a, you know, a very long and very detailed uh, breakdown of everything that had happened so far and how much it was going to be to actually complete the site to the client requirements, you know, based on mm. all the new stuff that they'd added along the way. Yeah. Um, and I think the original budget of the site was about five grand. And I said in, in this, in this report that it was going to cost another 20. Yeah. To get it right. And, uh, and we never heard from them again, <laughs> which, you know, some people go, Oh God, how could you let that happen? But you know, to be honest, if you're losing money, it's not good business. Yeah. And I think one of the problems there was, um, it was, some of it was down to me. Um, I could have been a lot firmer, I suppose. Um, but a lot of it was down to, uh, having a third party get into the middle yeah, between us and the client. I mean, you mentioned this in terms of that article before, in terms of, you know, salesmen, for example, or, or account men, account men that yeah. will be dealing with the client rather than designers or developers, or, or in this case, me. And I think uh, the only times that we've had, well, not the only times, but a lot of the times when we've had poor outcomes when it comes to clients is, when there's been a third party in the middle. Yeah. You've got to have really good communication skills to be able to kind of, to keep that together, to have that, to be that middleman mm. between the client and the, the person who's actually working on the site. I mean, I've, I've had projects before where, um, I remember one in particular where there was, there were about two middlemen in between me and, and the client. Um, and, just so many things, like so many things that were so badly communicated. You know, I'd get forwarded an email, which was a forwarded email from someone else that was just very vaguely trying to explain what the problem was. And I couldn't talk to anyone at the company, um, to, to really get answers. And, you know, they weren't happy because they weren't, they thought they weren't getting what they wanted. And I wasn't happy because I didn't understand what they wanted. No, we'd get, we'd get the client copying us in on emails to the agency um, yeah. 
and we'd see in the backlog of emails, you know, in yeah, the old email yeah. history, stuff that had been said that you think, well, I wasn't involved in that decision. Yeah, That's actually kind of, not even possible. You spend so much time just picking through these emails, trying to figure out what it is you should be doing. Well, here's the thing, right? I don't know whether I do business very well, but I do it my way. Yeah. And when you have to work through a third party, you're often doing things their way or in certainly different to, you know, the way that you might do it. So, you know, sometimes I might see emails going, bef- you know, to and fro between the client and, and, and agencies or third parties. And you think, Oh, God, it makes you wince. It's like, Oh God, I, no, I wouldn't have said it that way. Um, and I like to be in control of everything that we do. So, um, it was interesting what Laura said, uh, in the show a couple yeah, of weeks ago about agencies, about, about having a no middleman rule. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes it's really nice to collaborate with people. I'm working on a project at the moment with a legend, a designer legend who, you know, maybe I'll be able to tell you more about it in a, in another show coming up. Um, I love this job. You know, the collaboration is brilliant. Um, so I'm not saying that I wouldn't ever work for some, with somebody else because, you know, I like to, but when it's, when there's somebody else telling you what to do, you know, when it's kind of like, you know, client filter When it's passed through, down from the client exactly, to them to then to you. Rather than as a kind of a partnership thing. Yeah. Um, but those have been the times when things have really got away from us uh, and things yeah. have gone wrong. So I want to talk a bit more about that. I had a project or quite a few that I was working on, but do you want to do the next sponsor first? Yes. You know, I've spoken at over the years and attended a lot of conferences. Some of them have been large and some of them have been small. And some of the best of them have been local events that are hosted by people who really care about their local designers and developers. And that's what this new conference revolution is like. Revolution is being held in Shrewsbury. That's in Shropshire in the UK on Friday, 27th of September. And it promises to be a really good event. In fact, in fact, I've already bought a ticket. I bought a ticket before they asked if they could sponsor the show. So Revolution's got a great mix of speakers, some whose names you'll know, like Elliot J. Stocks. He's behind Eight Faces magazine, and he's now the creative director at Typekit. Jonathan Snook, who's the author of Scalable and Modular Architecture for CSS, which is a lovely little self-published I book. Went, I went to his workshop about that, and it was brilliant. He's Ace, I love Snook. And our good friend and standing co-host, Laura Cowbag. She's going to be yeah. speaking too. Then there's Robert Mills, who wrote Designing the Invisible, Chris Thorpe, Joel Hughes, David Vaughan, and Twitter's James Whitaker. Revolution is going to be single track. Those are the best type of conferences. Do you know what? I'm actually not going to speak at any multi-track conferences anymore. I think that single track's got to be the way to go. And this has got eight great talks and a panel discussion. It's being held at the Shropshire Conference Centre, which is really easy to get to. It's just 15 minutes from Shrewsbury Station, and it's easy to find and park if you're coming by car. And if you're coming from North Wales, you can share a ride with me, because I'll be driving down there, (laughs) listening to my country music on the car on the way down. Uh. I'm not saying I'll give you a lift back, but you get a lift there. There's a maximum of 200 tickets available and they're only £69. That's a bargain. So to buy yours, go to tinyurl.com slash revolutionconf. 
Yeah, I really did. I bought a ticket to that before Kirsty, one of the organisers, came to us and said, can we sponsor the show? Brilliant. So I'm really looking forward to that. It's nice to have one that's not being held in like London or Brighton. <laughs> no, it is. It's great to have places like Shrewsbury hosting things, you know, because there are people out there. It's quite close to you, isn't it? Uh, about an hour and a half, maybe a couple of hours in the car. Yeah. So, yeah, seriously, if anybody's coming down from North Wales, then, you know, park your car outside my house and we'll all go down together. It could be fun. Bring your sandwiches. Be like a day out. Yeah, egg sandwiches and a bag of crisps and a flask of tea. <laughs> and uh, actually, I don't, and country music. I don't want egg sandwiches in my car, and we have to have country music. But I promise, not to, <laughs> I promise not to tell any jokes. So let's continue there. Let's talk about more disasters that we've had. Right. The, we were talking um, just a minute ago about sort of third parties, um, and being a developer, I'm often kind of given these these. Well, when I worked for an agency that they send me these kind of hideous mock-ups of a site that their client once built. And um, often it was like a flat file made in paint or something. <laughs> like it was, I'd try and edit layers and it's like, oh, there aren't any layers. What? Um, and, you know, when I was to speak to the designer to ask them for basic things like what monstrosity of a font have you used? Um, but I wouldn't be allowed to do that. Um, probably for the best. Um, and it often, it, it just didn't really work on the web and it looked like it was something that was made for print. And I just resent every minute that I spent building it. And I knew at the end that I couldn't put it in my portfolio. Um, like one time I was given a mock up of a site that had been designed on one of those, do you know, those speculative design competition sites? Oh, awful. Yeah. And I just, you know, I'd feel like a code monkey. I thought, and I thought, this isn't what I want to be doing. You know, I want to be sort of working with a designer. Um, so I think the mistake I made, I should have learned more about the project and what I'd be working on before jumping straight into it. I should have learned more about the agency and um, how I'd be, you know, would I just be a code monkey or would I actually be able to work with a designer? Um, so now I don't work for agencies unless I can work alongside a designer because mm. I think that just – improves the quality so much we got a call this was a few years ago about doing some training at an agency abroad in france right. and everything was gonna you know everything was moving ahead they paid some money to us to kind of book our time for going over there and, and doing this training anyway to cut a long story short the training never happened yeah. and they came along and they said um, well, we said well what would you want to do about this money you know you've you've paid us some money um, we need to do something for it. And said, so actually, you can do something for it if you want. Uh, we've got this design, which we need to have coded up. Um, and, you know, if you can do that, I know it's not your normal work, but if you can do that, then that'd be great. And, you know, to be honest, I didn't think it was going to be that hard. Mm. And we had a couple of weeks spare. We could just drop this in. It seemed like the right thing to do. Honestly, you have never, well, maybe you have. <laughs> I've never seen anything quite like this PSD. I mean, you know, I've often said, how the hell can people use Photoshop for, for web design? This was like the, this was like, if, is there a maximum number of layers that you can use in Photoshop? Because <laughs> if they, they'd use them all, right? But that wasn't the worst thing. Um, the designers obviously had very little, uh, understanding of interaction design. So you'd have certain pages where 
the the links would be um you know the the links would be blue yeah and then you'd go to another page in the site where there was a predominantly blue theme and they'd make yeah, the text that sounds blue very familiar. <laughs> and then you'd go to another page where you know the text would be green or the links would be, and it, it, it was a that nightmare. sounds like my bank website oh god it was a nightmare <laughs> anyway i did get myself into a little bit of trouble because i started to say well hang on this doesn't make sense yeah you know let's standardize on making you know interaction colors you know getting the vocabulary right standardizing on uh, you know uniform color text and, and links that people guide. know what they're going to what they're going to click on etc and the worst thing was was that the agency came back and went no we can't change that because the client's already signed it off yeah and that. this was the thing right it's like this is where agencies a lot of the time were having middlemen go wrong because what were they thinking <laughs> so i would say listen this you've paid me to do this job you are paying me to do this job i'm going to do it the way that I know it's going to be right. And, you know, we should talk about it later. And if you want to, I mean, to explain, you know, some of the principles, then that's fine. But I'm not going to do something which I know is, is wrong. Yeah. Um, and there was a particular lady, bless her, who said something to me on the phone, um, which isn't the, the thing that people normally say to me on the phone, which was something along the lines of, you know, don't forget who's paying you. Mm. Yeah, I know. Can you imagine my blood pressure at that point? And I, and I said something along the lines of, and you might have to, you know, I don't, don't want you to <laughs> bleep something out, but I said something along the lines of, look, you know, if you want me to finish this, uh, then I'm going to be doing it the way that I know is right. You can change it later. But I'm not going to deliver something that is uh, that is completely wrong. Or I can just put the phone down now, and you can finish it yourself. <laughs> and uh, and they went, and and then the other guy that that we dealt with said, "Oh no, it's okay, Andy. It's okay, Andy. Yeah, you just carry on." <laughs> um, so yeah, that's always really difficult. I, I I think we well we now have we we, we don't get asked to code anybody else's designs. Um, and we don't get asked to design things that somebody else is going to code. Yeah. And I think that's just the way that I want to keep it. Yeah. Keeps you sane. So the next one, the next little work disaster I had, um, is one that I imagine a lot of people have had before and you only really learn from it when it's happened. Um, so I had a client who took, I think it was about two years to pay me after I'd launched the site. Jeez. Um, and I was, I was just starting out at that point and I didn't take a deposit. I didn't have a contract and I didn't ask for payment until after the site had launched. And my mistake there was, you know, kind of obvious. Um, basically, yeah, if you don't, if you don't use a, a contract, then it's really difficult often to, to get that money from people. And I was also, cause I was so new, I was kind of, you know, being very, very nice and not being as firm as I should have been. And I really think I should have um, thought about things more from a business point of view rather than, oh, this is fun. I'm making things for people and they're giving me money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, isn't it nice of them to give me money for this? Um, so, yeah, that's been something that, that uh, luckily it wasn't a lot of money, um, but it was kind of, that from that point on, I was like, yeah, okay, I see why people use contracts now. See, here's the thing, right? You should never 
um, have waited two years to get paid for anything. Nice. And I tell you, I don't know because I was in your head, but I've been in my own head in similar situations where you're almost a little bit nervous to keep on at them or to yeah. chase things up. And you're thinking to yourself, well, I sent an email last week. There's not a point in me sending an email this week. And you really want to get it sorted out. Half of you is really wanting to deal with it. And mm. then something in your head is kind of holding you back. And I've been in exactly the same situation. And what happens to me anyway is that these things kind of snowball in my head and I, they, they take on greater and greater significance. Yeah. Um, and if I'd have just have dealt with it sooner or dealt with it at the beginning, then, you know, things might not have taken on that kind of magnitude yeah, and you probably thing. wouldn't have had to take two years. I think at, at the start, I think I took about six months just to, to invoice them because I was so disorganized and I'd, kind of forgotten that I'd done it um because it was such a small site but um you know I'd send them an invoice I wouldn't hear anything back um so I'd send it again and I still wouldn't hear anything back um then I'd threaten to take the site down and they'd say oh no no don't worry we'll we'll pay you we've sent it to our like accountants they're going to pay it um and then I'd not hear anything back and then I'd be talking to their accountants who'd be saying oh no we've totally paid it and yeah. you know oh no wait we haven't actually um, but yeah, I just, I was just so kind of naive and, um, I, you know, I didn't even have anything written on paper saying this is how much you're going to pay me. It was just kind of verbally agreed. And that was, that was stupid. I got a confession. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually it's something that I've learned about myself fairly recently, actually. I think that, um, I think I learned it when, when I was doing therapy and I realized that I always had to have a problem, just one. I had to have one thing that was a problem that I would dwell on or think about. <laughs> and I used to have, if, if there was a list of 10 things that I could do in a day, I would only ever do nine on purpose in a way. And the, the, the tenth thing would somehow become a problem. And mm. I, and it was because I think that I was afraid somewhere deep in my subconscious that if I didn't have anything to think about, you know, if I didn't have anything to distract me in terms of work, that I'd have to deal with my real problems. And, you know, and there were plenty of those. Um, and that's actually got me into more trouble than anything else really over the years, you know, in business as well, because you know, I would have always had the one thing or maybe I would have dealt better with the travel client, you know, if I hadn't have just let things kind of sit there and fester. Yeah. Um, and that's what happened. You know, when we had our uh, bad business experience a few years ago with that kind of uh, failed venture. Yeah. That, that again was one, not everything was, was, was somebody else's fault. Um, part of that was my fault, our fault in the fact that we allowed the situation to run away with us and we either didn't have the confidence to deal with it to, you know, pick up on things or maybe with my psyche anyway, I kind of just had to have a problem there that was, you know, it's almost like it was chewing away at my brain. <laughs> yeah. So that I didn't have to think about anything else. And I wish, you know, if I could do anything really in terms of business, it might be to kind of go back and do that 
venture in a way that um, didn't end up a complete disaster. <laughs> I guess it's just a lot easier to just leave things than to deal with them. Well, here's another thing that I learned, and that is that not everybody is nice. And not everybody is professional and not everybody does things in the way that maybe you want to do things. And mm. we had, you know, we had a situation that, you know, there was a, a fellow that we were working with that was one of those type of people, you know, wasn't a nice fella. Um, and, you know, didn't have our best interests at heart. And because we didn't deal with that, it made it 10 times worse. Yeah. And, you know, if we had of, pointed out, you know, and, and, and stood up to maybe some of his fun and games, then, you know, maybe things wouldn't have turned out the way that they did. You know, I have a lot of regrets about that. It is very difficult, though, when you're in that situation. Well, I think that, you know, we weren't very confident. We've never been in business with anybody else. And all of a sudden, you know, we found ourselves kind of 50-50 partners. Um, and, you know, when you're in a new venture... You know, and I suppose it's the same with business, but it's the same with any kind of, you know, client relationship. You know, when you're entering into a, 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 an agreement for the first time, you, you don't want to come across as all kind of, you know, Jack the lad. You don't want to kind of be all kind of Mr. Overconfident. And sometimes, you know, designers being designers, you know, you want to please, don't you? So, you know, I wasn't going to be the one that was like, no, don't do it that way. I was the one that was like, well, hang on a minute. You're the guy with the business degree, you know. Do it that way. Um, you know, I just make things look pretty. And that was a horrible, horrible mistake. Uh, and I, I think that that's really, if, you know, if I could go back and do anything, it would be to, uh, to be more on top of the situation and not let things get away from us in the way that they did. Cause I'm mm -hmm. sure things would have worked out differently. It is difficult though to, because it sounds like you you had to question their authority. You had to kind of tell them they weren't doing a good job, and that that's difficult. Well, you know, there were situations where, for example, um, I mean, let's you know, let's just get back to the to, to brass tacks. You know, we had basically taken stuff and nonsense and given it to this other company. Because what happened was is that we had this great idea to uh, do some e-commerce software. And it was, it was built as a little side project. So it was, you know, a typical startup situation where we'd built this thing and there was an opportunity there. We thought to do something good with it because there was no uh, CSS based e-commerce, uh, software around at the time. Can you believe that? <laughs> um, but to the, obviously, so what we did was we, instead of it just being jointly owned, we wrapped the thing up in a company, even though the company didn't do anything. And when it came to kind of like taking this thing further, um, and thinking, well, yeah, there is a good opportunity for this. The most equitable way of doing it seemed to be to use this shell company. But of course, it didn't have any money. So stuff and nonsense, on the other hand, we were quite rich. You know, we were doing 150, 160 grand a year with just me working on my own. Mm. So the idea was, was that we would put, um, all of that business and all of that money into the new company and mm. grow it. You know, we'd own half of it. Yeah. Um, and it seemed like a good idea at the time. But what happened was that it, it turned out to be a disaster. I mean, you know, we hired lots of people. Some of them were no good. We ended up with, 
you know, really not the kind of business that I cared about. And it got to the point where actually it wasn't even good business. I mean, mm. we got to, uh, I think it was November 2005 and the business partner came to us and he said, listen, you know, we're, we're not going to make the salaries this, this year. Yeah, this month, we're not going to be able to pay anybody. In fact, I think I'm going to have to fire two of the staff. And we're like, you're going to hire, you're going to fire the staff like two weeks before Christmas. Hmm. Um, so what we ended up doing was that, you know, we ended up not being paid ourselves. You know, we, we, we didn't take salaries yeah. uh, at all for three months just so that the staff could keep their jobs. And, you know, they never knew that. Staff never knew that. Of course, because, you, you know, you don't want your employees to know yeah. that kind of thing. And I think that, you know, if we'd have known at that point, um, if we'd have maybe been a bit more upfront with the staff or maybe we'd have actually just turned around and gone, Jesus, we were doing way better on our own than we're doing here. Let's just, you know, let's let's just stop, mm. and, you know, and go back to where we were. But no, you know, we we, we carried on. Um, was that partly because you didn't want to let people down? You didn't want to let the staff down? I was Because scared. if you'd left, then it sounds like they would have just folded. I was scared. Um, I was scared because everything seemed to be wrapped up together. And, you know, yeah, I did feel, I did feel very responsible. Um, but I also felt very scared because I didn't know what else I would do. And I didn't yeah. have the confidence at that point to be able to say, do you know what? Screw it. You know, go and start up on your own again. You've done it before. Yeah. Um, which is ultimately what we did. But And it went okay. Well, no, it did go okay. And I think that's one of the things that, that I wish that I'd have dealt with better. And I wish that I'd have stamped on the guy, some of the guy's shenanigans, some of his bad behavior. <laughs> Jesus, some of the stuff that he did. Um, I wish that I'd had more of a, been, you know, been more confident, um, yeah. about dealing with some of that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, ultimately, we ended up back where we started. Um, and you know, and here we are. So, you know, what's the moral of the story? I suppose D deal with things. Don't let stuff get out of hand, which is, yeah. you know, been the story of my life, really. We should bun up. Got after that bombshell. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, I, I couldn't be happier where we are now. And, and I really do regret. I look back on some of that kind of dark times and I think, what a fool, you know, if I could, if I could do things then with the knowledge and the confidence that I've got now, then, I, then, then I think it would have been, uh, would have been very different. But it makes you stronger. And I guess you can look back and say, well, I'm not going to make those mistakes again. Yeah. But it's made me kind of, um, I suppose a little bit overcautious, you know, we mm. spent a long time before we hired somebody. Because I didn't want to make the same mistakes again. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I suppose that's a regret. That's, but it's, it wasn't a disaster. You know, yeah. here, here we are. So yes, we really burn it up this time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can email me at he has at unfinished bz and Anna, she has at unfinished bz or you can email both of us at they have at unfinished bz. All the links we mention in this episode are in our show notes. You can find them at unfinished.bz slash 21. That's the number 21. And to ask us questions or suggest topics, message us on Twitter at unfinishedbz. Thanks again to our amazing sponsors this week. Smashing Magazine's CSS3 for Responsive Design Workshop. 
hosted by me, and Revolution Conference that's happening on the 21st of September in Shrewsbury, Shropshire. That's hard to say. Shrewsbury, Shop. No, got it wrong again. Shrewsbury, Shropshire. See you next week. See you next week.